everybody and their neighbor. So glad you could stop by for another episode of Gear and Gigs. I'm your host, Jed Stone, and today with me I've got my regular cohort in crime, Trey Hawkins. Trey, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good. Awesome. Awesome. I've got my slow camera today, so you'll have to apologize for that. We have today one of the most exciting guests that we've had on the show, uh, virtually with us, of course. Um, his name is Olivier Cheston, and uh, whether you know him or not, he definitely has affected your life one way or another, and especially if you're a musician. Uh, we're going to let his story kind of unfold as we talk because it's too long to summarize in a couple of sentences. Uh, in fact, I've got a list of questions that I don't see how it's possible we're going to get through in the time we have. But, uh, but needless to say, thank you so much for coming on to the show. We really appreciate your time. We know how busy you are. Thank you so much. Excited to be there. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, the things that you have done and the things you're doing. Um, one of the things I know that will be of great interest to, the, to our viewers is Sound City. It, it's probably one of the, uh, I don't want to say it's one of the smaller things you've done. <laughs> you've done so many big things, but it's, 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 um, it's something that's of great import to the history of music, you know, and recorded music. And, you know, it has such a romance associated with it. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with that and, and where that sure. stands? Yeah, so, so Sound City obviously uh, started in 69, so I was not even born uh, at that time. Uh, but uh, basically, I would say five years ago or so, uh, I decided to move from New York to LA. Uh, I owned a, a gorgeous studio, uh, I was a partner actually in a studio in New York called Waterfront Studios, which is this gigantic church in Hudson, New York, which was started by a, a really great producer called Henry Hirsch. And, uh, and so as a partner in that, and uh, for professional reasons, I decided to move to LA, mainly because the music business moved to LA. And I always had a studio, uh, whether it was for my own productions, whether it's for some of my clients as a publisher or record label. So I always had a place where I could send people, let them experiment, etc. And so I was looking for a place in, in LA and really struggling to find the you know, I looked at building a studio, I looked at buying, even the record plant was for sale at one point, and it was too big, and uh, Bruno Mars ended up buying it, actually, and, oh, wow. or Justin Bieber, one or the other, I can't remember. And so I ended up, uh, you know, putting the word uh, out, and uh, I think it came via Craig, who is the guitar player for Lenny Kravitz, who said that he had been at Sound City and I should maybe talk to them. And so I spoke to, uh, at the time it was Kevin Ogunas, uh, who was, uh, you know, producer, producer himself, who was exiting. And so I basically took over uh, what he was doing and became partner, uh, you know, with the original owner uh, of Sound City. Uh, so, and we did uh, pretty massive, uh, you know, sort of a grading of the studio and, you know, clean it up, etc. cetera, and, uh, and did that for a few years and then <clears throat> probably I think it was a year ago or so, uh, I decided to exit uh, the studio business entirely. I mean, it was just, uh, uh, I love it, but at the same time, I'm sure you guys know that the headache that comes with, uh, with it, especially a commercial place, right. uh, you know, was just uh, just too much. And so, uh, so and sadly, in a sense, I mean, I still miss being in there, but I just don't miss the uh, insane amount of uh, headaches and responsibilities that come with it. Uh, but that that's a long story uh, you know short basically was really looking for a place in LA and uh, it was just an endless quest and it's just pure luck pure luck yeah. 
uh, and it was amazing. I mean, we did a you know massive uh, party. We we were you know booked solid uh, consistently. Uh, it was just really my decision that I just didn't want to just didn't want to be uh, in the studio business anymore. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, times have changed so much for studios. It's just. You know, the, I, I, obviously I have a great interest in, in that world and I, I love that stuff. And I've always wondered about opening up something that was on a scale like that. But the overhead is the thing that scared me. You know. Yeah, I mean, you know, what's interesting is that despite all those claims that, you know, it's you know very difficult, etc. I mean, that, that place specifically was booked solid. I mean, we really had no problem credit obviously the history i mean that's uh, that's always helps just like when you look at people selling gear on reverb you know owned by x y and z i mean that that stuff helps uh having said that you know the uh, the real uh, thing for me that was i shouldn't say the sole motivator but one of the big motivator was uh, to exit i should say was the fact that you know i own all these amazing gear i mean stuff that you know you dream of uh, of getting when you were a kid and things that made some of the greatest records in, in history, obviously doesn't mean you're going to make a great record, but you know, it helps that he's got pedigree uh, and it sounds good, etc. And really a lot of the sessions were people just using Pro Tools and the USB, uh, you know, into a, you know, phone. I mean, that, that was it. So for me, I said, you know, why am I bothering? It's great for me. I use all these things, um, you know, and, uh, you know, but at the same time, uh, Know, what does it mean? I mean, if it's not going to be used by others, I mean, it's basically me using it for what months at a year, uh, not worth it. And so, so part of it was uh, was driven by that and uh, other reasons. But the, the main, you know, the main ones were really just exhausted from the maintenance and headache. Not even financially, just the the amount of to do. And then the other thing was really, you know, if people don't appreciate it. Why am I bothering in being the custodian right. of all these really, really expensive uh, gear so and that has to be maintained and they're going to be fixed and you know etc etc so so i bet I you think, do oh go ahead i'm sorry oh no just i'm no. curious you know having heard you talk about kind of your your passion for that and and the the lack of passion from the artist standpoint of or appreciation of all the really cool you know outboard gear and, and things like that mm -hmm. you know do you think that the industry as a whole has reached a point where people just with you know how compressed everything gets with mp3 they just don't care about the nuance in the final product and so they don't care about it going into it or is it more of a a functionality thing of like well we don't really have time to fly out to la for you know a month to re to record something or, or do that like what what do you think kind of motivated no i think that the, the main distinction for me was really uh look i and i'm not a purist but i, I did record to tape i had the four tape machines mm -hmm. uh, so you know and and obviously you know i'm old enough where i grew up in those days i mean i grew up at the time where you had to learn how to you know pull the tape and install it and cut and edit etc right. so you know doing you know reduction mix downs and you know and bouncing etc so you know all that is gone now i'm never intended for people to uh you know, necessarily use you know tape that's not the problem it's just all the other gear that was there from the echo chamber to uh you know the console to you know all the amazing preamps etc people just bypassed all this and just say right. you know what i'm good with just using the avid uh, preamp or this or that i mean there was really no you know and so 
I don't know what uh, prompted it. I think it's a mix of one, uh, you know, education, meaning, you know, you didn't grow up in those times. You can't blame sure. people for not knowing how to use it. So right. it is a time investment, to your point. Two, uh, I think there's a lack of knowledge uh, about it, you know, meaning why should I care? You know, right. if I can hear a guitar, I can hear a guitar. So that addresses your point about the nuances. Right. And then the third part is, uh, you know, uh, because of technology, people don't need, uh, or at least a lot of artists don't really need an engineer. Uh, right. Some do, but really the producers now become engineers. Right. And that's where it is. In the old days, it used to be very distinct jobs, except right. maybe for somebody like Ken Scott or Glyn Jones, but there were not a lot who doubled as engineers. And even then had assistant engineers who were placing the mic, who were plugging in the patch bay, who were dealing with you know, the, the, the tape and whatever. So, so all that, you know, is gone. So I'm not, I don't have any judgment about it. I mean, I'm really no, not no. one of these that's just like, ah, oh, it's so much better. It just changed. And, uh, and if you're, you know, if you look at the ones who can really pay for those sessions, right. I mean, which would be a pop artist, um, you know, what are they going to do? I mean, they, they're going to be, uh, you know, they need to do uh, one vocal or a track that was entirely built with either plug-in scenes or scenes, right. uh, is it really going to make a, a big difference? I mean, probably not. Uh, sure. Do I think I could make a difference to it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, running a uh, you know a ARP uh, you know synthesizer uh, you know whatever it is or mug or whatever into uh, you know a high quality preamp will give you way more weight than uh, doing it through uh, Pro Tools. But right. you know the reality is that. It's probably just delaying uh, the inevitable, which is that digital technology eventually will be superior to analog in terms of headroom and uh, you know and fidelity, etc. I don't. I mean, I've been out for a year, but you know, uh, when I left, it was not the case yet. Uh, I could sure. still hear the difference. Do they matter? Probably. I mean, if you're doing something that's really Precious, like a jazz session or classical session or something that needs to be high fidelity, great. Uh, but to your point, if you're doing something that's going to be, you know, compressed on, on radio, on Spotify at 320, uh, you know, mega, megabytes per second or whatever it is, I mean, it's, it doesn't, nobody really give a crap, you know. So uh, so that was that. So for me, I just felt, you know what, why am I keeping that? I mean, probably better off doing something else. And, uh, you know, and then it's, it's insane. You know, you tell, you go in a session and tell someone and say, you should really try this. This is going to make a huge difference to your vocals, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, no, I mean, they still want to get the U47, uh, you know, on the chain, but then everything after that is just, you know, garbage. And so uh, it made, you know, at the end of the day, you might as well just put a SM7 or whatever. It wouldn't make any difference. Uh, so, you know, so for me, there was uh, this sort of uh, looking at the entire chain, you know, from, you know, beginning where the, the sound source is all the way to final product and trying to keep as little uh, in the signal path, if you wish, as possible. I mean, that was always sort of the goal, right? right. And uh, and then, you know, you get into the session and you just realize that man, nobody, nobody cares. So, and again, no, I'm not resentful. I just said, you know what, time to do something else. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I, I was lucky to, to uh, you know, start as a, as a session player, you know, and so I worked in all these incredible studios. I mean, the Heat Factory in New York and Atlantic Recording Studios and, you know, Sony Studios in, uh, on 54th and, 
you know, I can go on and on. And, and you know, it's, uh, it was amazing. And so, you know, my view is that um, that's what I knew, that's what I enjoyed, and that was my standard. Um, right. I'm sure if I grew up today, uh, you know, I would be really happy just, uh, you know, just doing, uh, you know, using Pro Tools, etc. Uh, but I think it's a matter of time. I mean, if you listen, I'm a subscriber to um, Kobas, so it's a, it's a streaming service, uh, high fidelity. And so it's really, really high, you know, bit rates. Like uh, I think it's what is it, uh, 40, uh, 192, and I don't remember, but whatever. Really high HD. It's better than CD. Way better. Oh wow. Way, way better. It buries any of the CD. It's higher resolution, so we can get that on the output. Mm-hmm. We just need it to get it on the input. Uh, and it's sort of an interesting thing that there's a really brilliant guy called Dave Amos, you know, who's an audio uh, designer. Uh, love Dave, really lovely guy. He worked on restoring the uh, the Helios console that I had, and and uh, and Dave, uh, you know, I was talking to him. I said, you know, why do all these converters sound like? And so he explained. He broke out the whole thing for me. You know, yeah. all of them. A lot of them. When you you know you pump a um, you know pink noise and look at the, the the curve, you know, you can see the the peaks. You know, in the mid range and this, and it dips and it doesn't hold the bass, etc. So you can shoot out all of those, uh, you know, converters. And Dave really, you know, had a great explanation. He said, well, you know, the reason why those don't get improved is there's no market for it. People yeah. are happy with what they have. Right. Yeah, to your point. And so, but that's what needs to happen. Uh, it needs, it starts with the converters. The converters are really not good, really mm-hmm. not good. But the minute it's gonna, I think the fact that we're now entering a streaming age of HD audio, is mm-hmm. gonna force those to uh, you know, to have the converters that are going to provide the quality that we're going to hear on the output. Well, and hopefully right that'll kind of uh, elevate everything. The case, but I think it's a matter of time. I, yeah, you got you have to have the consumer want it. They've got to demand it. You know, they've got to see the the benefit of it. You know, yeah. and. Uh, with the music that's currently being, as you said, generated so much from machines anyway, it's hard to find the soul to try to magnify with the the gear, you know, that has that quality of of bringing out those delicate little subtleties and things, you know, I mean. Yeah, but again, I think a lot of it is splitting hair in my view. I mean, you know, I, um, I do some work with, with David Crosby, you know, from Crosby, Stills & Nash. He's an mm-hmm. amazing uh, artist, obviously. He's very, very sensitive. Subtleties. His music is really about subtleties. I, I look sure. at it; it's very much like jazz, and uh, or look at artists like Sarah Jerome's or people like that who are really put up amazing music today. Um, you know, it's still there. You know, I, I think you can still get that. It's really for people like you and I who have very uh, refined ears in terms of listening to uh, music at a level. So it's sort of a niche concern. Right. I think what I'm saying is that you know, as we're entering a high def uh, era of streaming, that's going to push uh, audio manufacturers to yeah. want to capture that and also tell people. I say, well, how come this doesn't sound as good as this? Because suddenly, you know, a really good example. Um, you know, maybe five years ago, I uh, I was subscriber to Title. Title, as you know, had a high def uh, you know subscription plan. Mm-hmm. And I played Who's Next for my staff. And I said, okay, tell me if you can hear a difference. We did Spotify against uh, Tidal. And interestingly, everybody picked up the difference. Everybody. Yeah. 
I mean, they did, and, and really where it was apparent was base and the decay on the river. You know, okay. it's, you know, Olympic studio where the album was recorded at, at uh, you know, plate reverbs, and the reverb was getting cut off, you know, by, uh, because as you know, the MP3s or any compressed format shaves at the bottom and, and top, pretty much. I mean, I'm simplifying, but that's what's going on. Right. So people hear it, it's there. You know, yeah. it's not like they're not, uh, you know, listening and, and paying attention. It's just, you know, not as apparent right now because there's no comparison. So I think it's just a matter of time. I mean, Amazon's got an HD uh, service now, Amazon Music. So, you know, it's starting to, to spread a little bit. It's just a matter of time because before it gets more mainstream. And hopefully we're going to see a beneficial effect out of it. Well, and, and that that streaming service, we'll we'll get the link and we'll put that in the show notes because that I mean that's super exciting to me. I did, I had no idea. Um, yeah, Kobuz, it's Q O B U Z. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, Excellent. That'll that'll be exciting to listen to because even some of the like the vinyl pressings that I have are basically just the same compressed MP3 audio, just just pushed to vinyl. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you've always... got, you know, um, uh, Mobile Fidelity, or well, I forgot the name, you know, some who do a high level issues. I actually don't listen to vinyl, personally, I know it's sacrilege, I'm sure, on, on your uh, channel, but uh, for me, it's sort of a downgrade. I, I'm telling you, the, the high def uh, resolution is, uh, is mind-boggling. It's fucking yeah, that, that's exciting. And I, I ended up actually making investment in upgrading uh, my entire uh, audio chain uh, to listen, so I now have a Chord Quest. Uh, which is amazing. I mean, it's, it was really night and day, uh, overnight when I plugged it in. Mm -hmm. So it's a DAC uh, converter, obviously. And, uh, you know, and I'm just going into uh, IMF TLS, really old 70s uh, speakers who are, you know, fabulous. And that's it. So it goes from, you know, I've got a, a Blue Sound uh, audio uh, streaming server mm -hmm. into the Quest, uh, the cord, and out to the speakers. There's nothing else. And, awesome. and it goes through optical uh, cable, and that's it. I'm done. I'm set. I really don't need anything else. So, nice. see now, this makes me think. Ironically, given our, our conversation, of a friend of mine who's very much into old school. It's got to be vinyl. It's got to be the high end tube power amps and tube preamps and everything separate. And he's got the the the. The record player that sucks the record down on with vacuum so it goes totally flat so there isn't a single little I mean he's he wants it to be the purest vinyl spectacular tone there is mm -hmm. and and here's the, the the gentleman complaining about the guys who don't want to appreciate that stuff in the studio going I'm just gonna take this this, this box and go straight to my speakers no <laughs> tubes no messing around yeah. I just want it easy <laughs> yeah I want it to sound excellent but I want it easy yeah, I mean, I have um, I have quad uh, speakers, uh, you know, so I use uh, I use quads. Uh, sorry, quad uh, two uh, amplifiers like tube, uh, which I'm not plugged in right now, and I also own. I probably have eight pairs of speakers. I mean, like anybody that works in the studio, you're sort of endlessly chasing. And so I have, uh, for example, um, you know, uh, what are they called? Um, uh, Tenoy Lockwood, uh, oh. you know. Uh, which actually I'm selling right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have the last pair of Kadak uh, speakers that were installed, uh, you know, they were the ones at, uh, you know, Trident Studio. Uh, I don't know, I got tons of crap, but, uh, but yeah. Wow, well, that's a, that's an interesting problem to have, too much amazing gear. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when a lot of it's got history to it, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, um, so yeah, no, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, a lot of it is really just chasing, you know, which is what a lot of people do. You're just constantly chasing to try to get the sound that, uh, you know, you heard and want to uh, replicate, you know? Right. Yeah. So, uh, can we talk a little bit, we've talked a little bit about your, your studio work and, uh, it's just, I could go on and on asking you a zillion questions about the gear or about who you've worked with, but you know, we do have a limited amount of time. So I, I, I want to move on a little bit. Um, it's in, in looking you up online for this interview and, and you're a hard person to find a lot of information about, but one of the things that came up is legacy preservation. And it seemed like it, it was very, it emotionally has a, a big feel for me. It's like, Oh, I, that seems like something very important. And it seems like you have a passion for that beyond just the business standpoint. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what you're doing with that. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you guys are going to relate. I mean, you know, Obviously, it starts with listening to music, right? You're listening to all these great records, uh, you know, anything from, you know, the Beatles, as obvious as the Beatles, and as obscure as uh, King Crimson or whatever. Yeah. And so you're hearing all these uh, these great albums, and you want to understand everything about those. How were they made? Which instrument? Who was playing? Where was it recorded? Etc. So the credits, you know, in the album become really your best friend, right? I mean, you're right. really trying to get a sense of, you know, who was involved, you know, right. and how did that work? And so as you go through that, you're, you know, starting to put the pieces together. Obviously, I grew up pre-internet era, so that was a nightmare to get information. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that I got lucky early in my career is, you know, working as a musician and then, you know, actually being able to hire, uh, you know, some of these guys. I worked with Ken Scott, you know, people like that who, you know, I did a session with Glyn Jones go very well but you know still and so you know uh so you get to to pick up you know a little bit but really when you go back early that's what you're trying to figure out you know what is george martin doing what is the bureau like you know uh, can i see photos you know and blah 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 and so you know as it's you know evolving you know we're uh we're getting into uh you know you're getting into a situation where you're saying okay well i I've researched it, now I want to try to replicate, right? And that's when you start getting into the studio business and, you know, figuring out which gear does what, etc. cetera. Uh, so over the years, you know, um, you know, for me, there was, you know, obviously that drive, which was to try to replicate those sounds. And so the byproduct of that is what you were talking about, which is sort of the preservation of the gear. You know, I mean, I want, for example, the last Sound Techniques console in existence. Uh -huh. uh, sound Techniques is, niche for most people, but it's critical to uh, history of recorded music. Uh, you know, I have the original Island uh, 1969 Helios mixing desk, you know, uh, etc. So I own that still. It's in storage, fortunately, but you know, whatever. So, you know, you get all this and you start trying to say, okay, how did they do it, etc. Uh, it's sort of a fool's uh, search in a lot of ways. I mean, you're pretty much, you know, going uh, against trying to do something that is impossible. I mean, the stock of the tape is not the same, the cables are not the same, the room's not the same, the musicians, obviously, you know, that's the obvious, we're not even uh, in the same uh, realm, uh, you know, etc. So, but at least, you know, there's this, uh, this sort of uh, search. Now, what it migrated into for me uh, today uh, is that, you know, I run a company that acquires and manages the legacy of uh, you know iconic artists. Uh, so talk about the Beach Boys and etc. We manage the Eagles, we manage Fleetwood Mac and City Dan and Van Halen and 
you know, I can go on and on. Uh, so it is the exact same uh, thought process, in a sense, or the same rationale, uh, which is they've contributed to culture uh, in a very important fashion. We have a responsibility to, uh, you know, maintain uh, this, right, and, and to make sure that new generations know about it and that it gets, you know, translated for them in some ways. Uh, so that sort of is one big thread, if you wish, throughout my career is that, you know, I have a certain obsession uh, towards, you know, not just music, but just culture from specific era, let's say 1950s, 1970s, 80s, etc. right, I mean, that sort of that, uh, that period. And uh, you want to make sure that, you know, your passion gets shared with other people. And right. so, and part of that means that you're protector but you're a curator and you're a marketer and you do all that right so that that's really uh, sort of the the wrong uh, wrong answer to that to that question okay so you've you've <laughs> you, you've painted a picture that it's going to be confusing to some of our listeners i think who are more brass tacks equipment guys musician guys and you've thrown out some band names that are going to have everybody you know thinking, oh my gosh, it's all over the, 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 the place. So maybe you can tell us, for instance, Trey is a big Fleetwood Mac fan. Tell us about yeah. what you do for Fleetwood Mac so we can get an idea of so, what, how that works. So, yeah, no, no. So, so, okay, so first of all, I never did recording except from two years. I never did recording full-time. Recording full time. Okay. Uh, you know, one, uh, I could have uh, had opportunities to, to do it, uh, but there was a clear decision on my end that, um, I don't want to be in the business that all my friends are, which is to record sometimes amazing bands, 90% of the time really shit bands. Right. Uh, I just don't have yeah. the... Hey, dude, the, this the, is my life, man! <laughs> yeah, I just don't have the bandwidth, I don't have the patience, I don't have the personality to deal with it. So, right. uh, so for me, there was a, a clear decision that I would own recording studios that would pay for themselves, hopefully, so sure. that I would have a place to go to make my own records and my friends' records. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's obviously was a big driver. Uh, so I always had a career in parallel in the music business. I was a label executive. I was a publisher, uh, still a publisher, uh, and now today I'm uh, I have a business. And I'm a partner with Irving Azoff, uh, who's a you know very famous manager, and Irving has been the Eagles manager from the inception, uh, manages Fleetwood Mac, etc. So through him. Uh, you know, I get to work with all these uh, great bands and, uh, you know, and so, you know, we manage them like we manage any, uh, like anybody manages a band, which is, you know, we help them tour, we help them put out an album, we help them, uh, you know, do all those things uh, as, uh, you know, for their career. And so, uh, so, I mean, I'm not going to get into the job of a manager, no, but, sure, you know, sure. it's pretty, pretty, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, you know, but the, the thing that, uh, you know, Irving uh, has built, you know, over the years is, you know, he's got the same clients. You know, he's been Stevie Dan's manager since the beginning. Uh, you know, he's been, uh, you know, etc. So, you know, a lot of what we, uh, you know, we do is really figuring out every day, you know, how do you keep these great legacies into the public consciousness, whether it's through marketing, whether it's through a new product, whether it's through touring, you know, blah, 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 right? All those things that you would imagine that a manager does. Uh, and so uh, so that that's a big portion of my, uh, my day, my life. 
so a lot of what we're doing, uh, what I was doing, sorry, before, uh, you know, before that was really uh, being a publisher and label. And so but that entails, if you want to be competitive, you've got to sign uh, current music. And right. so that meant, uh, you know, working with, you know, the, the Bunetta brothers who produced uh, and wrote songs for, you know, One Direction and Shawn Mendes, etc. Uh, and so that was interesting because, you know, uh, in a sense, you know, that's not where my heart is. But, you know, as you do, I mean, I did this for a long time. So I guess, you know, I had to like it. But what was interesting is to see how the process is so different than what, you know, you're probably uh replicating in your studio. Uh, this is really, uh, I know people think it's a factory, but it's sort of a factory that's guided by, you know, a deep commercial sense of what uh, music should be like, you know, uh, to the general public. That's a skill set. Uh, that's a real skill set. I mean, to be able to sit down uh, with an artist that you sometimes have never met, right, and write material that's going to resonate with them, even if they didn't write any of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and also keep in mind that it's got to be broad enough to reach a, a very wide audience, whether it's Katy Perry or whatever uh, kind of music. I mean, it's uh, it's a skill set. It's not for me, you know, but it's a skill set. Uh, and so, you know, we're not, uh, you know, so for me, you know, I went from that to suddenly plunging back into, uh, you know, the sort of legacy business that I really like. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, so that that's really, uh, you know, sort of the, the, the link there at the end of the day is really about, you know, a passion for the creative process and figuring out how to be an enabler uh, to that. So you can apply that in the studio, you can apply it, apply it outside of the studio, uh, putting out a record, helping a, a writer, you know, get their songs heard and out. Uh, you know, it's all one big chain. And yeah. uh, and the you know it's just a matter of how uh, close you want to be to the the creative process. Do you want to be next to the musician in the studio while they write? Do you want to be even before that with the uh, the writer that's sending the song? Uh, do you want to be the label that puts it out when it's finished? Uh, you know you pick your place. Uh, just pick where you wanna where you wanna be. Uh, you know. So and then the other thing to be honest is I saw the the the, the complete breakdown of uh, and, and really the failure of all the studios you know they not by intent but you know people moved you know home studios took over I just didn't want to be part of it I mean I have sure. no interest in uh, in trying to salvage uh, I mean I saw Troy Germano was trying to salvage you know the hit factory which ended up being condos in New York and Criterion it ended up selling uh, you know etc so Criterion I mean uh, in Miami etc so uh, you know, it's it's tough, uh, tough business to be. Um, very tough. Well, I feel like I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit younger, but the it's changed so much just even within my lifetime. Like I can't imagine. Like there's, I was kind of on the cusp of some of the things. You know, I I didn't grow up with internet, but from adolescence when I started really listening to and and kind of falling in love with music, it was at least kind of there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think that that's something that a lot of of people kind of take for granted i guess that mm-hmm. because we have the internet because we have this connectivity that all the greats that kind of brought music to the elevation point that it is now we just assume they're always going to be there and it's always mm-hmm. going to be kind of in our face but you're basically you're the guy behind that, that, that that's holding everything up and going no 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 it's still here um it's not just happening naturally you're 
you're actively doing it um, right. so that so that that stuff doesn't get lost and that's i mean that's really cool it's uh, noble it's that, a noble pursuit besides you know the the music connections just as a legacy for humanity and trying to keep those iconic important artists alive in the culture's memories i think a critical thing well and especially like you know my sister has never grown up in a world where she didn't have an ipad yeah like she's never going to have context for non-digital anything much less music and and stuff like that and so giving people the education the context for why this stuff is not just important but just cool because that's at the end of the day everybody got into music because it was cool it made you feel something and you yeah, liked it. I mean, I think, you know, the, um, the, the, the music itself is never the problem. Right. But once you expose people to it, it's really exposing them. That's right. a real challenge. Uh, you know, it's like wine. I mean, uh, you know, some people may dislike wine, but it's very much a minority. You know, it's an easy product to sell. You just have to make sure that people are aware it's available. Right. We get it and, and why you should give it a shot. So my job is give it a shot. Right. That's really what it's all about. Uh, and, and give context, you know, and explain why historically it's been you know, important. I mean, uh, you know, if you look at, you know, it could be as simple as doing a documentary like Laurel Canyon or doing a biopic like the Queen one, or, you know, etc. But it's it's really a day-to-day -day thing. You know, you just have to create content, whether it's for Instagram, Facebook, etc., and just get that out. Right. So, uh, you know, and and I think you know the, um, you know, the studios are not really good. I mean, V-Road actually does a good job of marketing. We've got a full team, they're doing plugins, they're doing merch, they're doing all sorts of things and really capitalizing on the history. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't. Uh, you know, if you look at, uh, I mean, I don't want to name names, but you know, a lot of the studios, you just don't hear about them. Right. So, uh, you know, and, and I think that history uh, is part of their DNA and should be really exploited. They right. should not. So yeah, we, we don't ahead. pivot very well. It, it doesn't seem like <laughs> within the industry to no. to adjust to new things, no. and especially with as fast as they've been changing recently. Well, music listeners are modern. Music makers are traditional and classic-minded generally. You yeah. know, I mean, guitar players look. You know, they want tube amps from the 1950s. They're, the peak guitar year was 1959. For God's sakes, you know. I mean, it's. Yeah. You know, it's like being a, a, a guy who plays violin. You want something that's really old. It's not, you don't want cutting mm -hmm. edge. So it's, it's tough to, I think, the juxtaposition of, of the musicians making the art, wanting a certain ethos behind it, and then the listeners having a much mm -hmm. more disposable attitude. We talk a lot on the show about how, uh, you know, a guitar player listens to somebody playing guitar and they think, oh, is that a Les Paul? Is that a Strat? I wonder if he's playing through a Marshall. And your girlfriend or your mom or your dad or whoever listens to it goes, guitar. And they could care less what kind or whatever, unless it sounds particularly harsh or terrible or, or whatever. They don't care. They classify as guitar and move on. And we've tried to, to, we try to say once in a while, just to remind musicians why we get so fired up about the, the idiosyncrasies and particularities about, of gear, is that it's, it's to inspire the musician, right? So you want to go into that studio and you want to have that, the, that environment and those pieces of gear fired up so that when you go to play, maybe the sound won't be discernibly different from a, a pod. Maybe it won't be, you know, maybe a guy with a pod can make it sound as good, but your performance playing through that feeling, the romance of that gear and the, you know, all that stuff getting your, your fizz going, that's what comes through in the performance. So so our, our theory is the performance is the thing that benefits most from the persnicketiness of gear that, that musicians tend to have. Mm -hmm. So 
that that's how we justify spending it to our wives. That's that's our story. We're sticking with it. Please please don't fight us on that. We need your help here. So yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, for me looking at, at all the equipment. It was interesting because I started like everyone, you know, buying what you read about, you know, the API and the Neve, etc. And you know, when you really use your ears, uh, you know, is when you start really segregating. I mean, you know, by the end, you know, by the time when, when I exited Sound City, uh, I had very, very little gear in a lot of ways. There's not a order by any stretch. I mean, I don't know. It's still, you know, like a, a sync IO and, you know, things that you can't escape. But in terms of outboard and, and, and others, it's not a lot. It's really right. not a lot. And part of it was really this process of uh, educating yourself over the years and just saying, okay, do I really like this new thing? I know people want it when they come in the studio, but is it really something that is sonically uh, additive to what I'm doing? Does it bring anything? No, I didn't like it. it distorts a lot. Uh, it doesn't hold the bottom really well. Uh, you know, it's not doesn't have. I mean, it's not for me. API really harsh, like really harsh. I mean, chop your heads off. You know, I had Uray monitors, 813. Yeah, they make you work. Do I want to listen to this every day when I wake up? No. I mean, it's just like brutal. Yeah. Uh, so you got all these things like uh, distressors. You know, people love distressors. Okay. I mean, yeah, it's sort of your four by four compressor, but it's not a very good compressor. I mean, put a bass through it. Tell me if you can hear the bass. You go in the room, you walk back in the studio, it's gone. It just doesn't hold it. Right. Uh, you know, so you get things like that. I mean, I even own a 670 for many years, which I restored and, you know, etc. Um, cool, I used it on vocals here and there. Slow, not a really fast uh, compressor for a start. Uh, you know, and so there's all this process that you go through, you just realize that, yeah, I mean, it's cool. I mean, that's what the Beatles use. They use 660, you know, and, uh, and, and others in the, in the studio. That's what they had at the time. Does that mean that that's what I got to use now? Not really, right. no. So, uh, so I think that that's sort of the, I don't want to say painful, but certainly the, the process that I went through. And, you know, in the end, you know, it was really KM56, U48, uh, you know, a few obscure mics. I mean, I have some here I can show you. Uh, you know, things like that. And then that was it. I mean, uh, you know, so yeah, it's expensive as hell. You know, U48 is not not cheap, KM56 are not cheap, but, you know, I had three KM56, one U48, uh, you know, a few other mics, and that was good enough. I can record, uh, you know, and I had barely any uh, outboard, uh, sorry, uh, external preamps. I used Helios, or uh, I used actually MM1000, you know, the tape machine. I ended up using those preamps on nearly every recording that I made. Uh, I had to get them modded, but they sounded extraordinary. And um, and that was a hat. And so so I think you know really the um, the big lesson for me was uh, using my ears uh, and stop worrying about you know whether it's a review, whether it's a blog, whether it's gear slots, whether whatever it might be, I don't care. Uh, you know, I ask for the on loan, I'll try it. If I like it, I'll keep it. If I don't, uh, you know, it's gone. And uh, you know, and then really looking at situations, you know, uh, not even instruments, but frequency bands. You know, if I really want to capture a very high frequency, uh, you know, and smooth it out, what am I going to use? Is it a uh, M160? Is it a Bayer? Is it a ribbon mic? Is it the RCA? Whatever. 
I'll use that. I'll take that. If I want to do a, you know very detailed recording of a guitar, I don't think you can really beat a KM56. It's as good as it gets. Um, you know, and again, I mean that's a great example. People buy the KM84 as a substitute. It has nothing to do with each other. They are they're totally different mics. And the KM84 is really, really, really harsh. Again, mm. stuff, stuff, mic. Uh, so, uh, so it was all this process, you know, over the, the years of buying, selling, buying, selling, etc. But, you know, it took me a few years to really have the, the sort of I don't want to call it courage. There's no courage in it, but the uh, decision to really offload. So, okay, I'm going to stick to what I like. And by the way, it makes your process way simpler because right. you know exactly what you're going to get when you pick a mic. You don't have to put six in front of a musician and hope for the best. Uh, you learn your gear really well. Uh, the the thing that I did have a lot of were instruments, and that's a totally different story. You know, two pianos and you know, uh, and and well, tons of synths, etc. But that that's your palette. That's really what matters, right? Uh, because that that's what allows you to express yourself. Mike doesn't. Wow, he's describing my situation pretty well. I feel pretty good about it. I've yeah. got it down to just a handful of preamps I like, three or four mics, a couple tube mics that I like, and then just instruments like crazy just because that's where the inspiration comes when you hand it to the musician and go here and they're inspired and if they're not pull it out give them something else they don't care yeah. about the rack gear just, yeah. just find the I, stuff that sounds big that sounds full i love the fact because i say this all the time about the the ears and training the ears and and people like oh you know when you're when you're learning guitar because that's my little microcosm of, of all of this is you know, when you're learning guitar, like what's the hardest part? Like, well, training your ear is the most important part. The mechanics will come. You can get there, but, but training your ear is the harder, you know, more mm -hmm. important part because if you can't hear it, you can have all the technique and all of the mechanics in the world. But if you can't tell what's good, you know, even though it's slightly subjective, like what's universally accepted as good, then you're not going to be as inspired a player. Right. Um, and so, you know, having that, I, I really think that we've kind of lost that a little bit within the industry for people that are maybe aspiring professionals. You know, the professionals, I think that's probably the difference is somebody that, that has the ear and has that kind of, we think about it like an it factor, but it's really the, the ear and the ability to hear things and objectively make decisions based on that. And taste. Uh, you know, when you yeah. hire a producer or an engineer in the old days, a lot of it is you're hiring somebody's taste. You know, anybody can learn to wire something up, but, right. you know, so everybody's going to choose something different out of that same set of knobs. So, you know, you're picking somebody that has the right choice-making machine inside their head for you. You know, right. that's, the, that's the hard thing to find, I think, you know. But yeah, I mean, I think that, that's sort of the thing that gets, um, that technology has done is because it, allowed democratized you know recording mm -hmm. so much you just don't go through the same grueling uh, process uh you know and so you know you can use garage band uh, right now and you make a sound so that's a beautiful thing right. uh at the same time uh you know does that mean that you're going to know how to really capture that acoustic uh guitar uh properly probably not but you know again it's a matter of decision as to how much people care, uh, and whether it really matters, uh, I think it matters. Uh, I think it will matter over time, over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. I've seen great recordings do uh, do survive, 
but then again, you know, there's a lot of really shitty recordings who, because of the songwriting, the performance, and how compelling they are, mm -hmm. uh, you don't really care. Right. I mean, I'll be there by the four tops. I mean, the vocal is distorting like crazy the entire time. Do you care? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Yeah. So, they're clipping the entire recording. And, uh, yeah, different, different era. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, and now, strangely enough, you've got, you know, plugins like Decapitator, where you're putting freaking distortion back in. That's how crazy it is because of right. the insane headroom that we have on, in digital. And so you're, you're not going the, the opposite way. Yeah, I played something I had recorded for Travis Larson the other day, and he said, oh, man, those drums are too clean. And I'm like, but all my life I've been struggling to get clean-sounding drums, and I, I overshot the mark, he says. I've gone too far, and now I have to dirty up my drums. I'm not, I'm not sure how to do that. I feel bad. But I, mean, I think that's a good – I mean, I don't know this artist, but, you know, in a sense what's uh, – What's interesting there is that the artist should have known what he wanted in the first place. That's not happening. Uh, meaning, you know, if that's the sound that he wanted, which is, you know, let's say like a Led Zeppelin one sound, right, where it's on the verge you sure. know, of distortion all the time, uh, you can hear it, uh, especially on the toms. And so then that's what should have been, uh, and I'm not blaming you, but that's what should have been raised at the beginning. So what are you trying to do? Uh, you want to be Steely Dan Gaucho or you want to be Led Zeppelin? One? Yeah, I was well, going for more the Steely Dan for that yeah. particular track, uh, but you know, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Hmm. I hadn't thought about it so much in terms of distortion. I thought about it more in terms of microphone bleed or gating or that kind of thing. So it's yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, same, same, yeah, same, uh, same story. But, but it I mean, might have been that's... distortion. Maybe that's the part that I didn't get. Maybe no, was... but you look at Led Zeppelin One. I mean, obviously, there's a famous story of uh, you know Glenn. Uh, Discovering the Green Jones now technique, and you know, to him, you know, where you got three mics, you know, um, you know, but you listen to who's next, you know, uh, it's another Green Jones recording. You know, it's a very often sound, very often. So people think, well, that's what Green does, but then you listen to his Clapton recordings, same place, super tight, yeah. different different type of drums. So clearly, there's a decision that was made and a conversation as to what reflects the music uh, the most. And is it the boisterous who and uh, and Led Zeppelin, or is it sort of the more uh, you know quiet uh, Clapton uh, record, back, laid back Clapton recordings, which is part of the album, laid back. Mm -hmm. And so you know, and you know, you, you start thinking about you know those things. And for me, a lot of what I used to do was really having these really long conversations before going in the studio and sending references and say, okay, that track we're going to do like uh, I don't know, like Trevor Horn and this. I'm thinking doing this, and that's going to do more. Like that and this and you know we're going to do more BG's criteria etc. So oh one big thing having this you know you, it's not just having the tools it's having the references as well to be able to uh, have a very informed and, and intelligent and productive conversation with the artist mm -hmm. before you get in the studio. That's really for me uh, you know half of the battle. Uh, you know and obviously I'm a musician so the arrangements you know were big big deal. You know, I think that's that's the thing that people put aside and don't worry about. Uh, the arrangement is, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. For me, it's 70% of the sound that you're going to get out. Uh, and, and the way, for me, I, I learned that was, you know, being a session player, uh, in, again, the days where you had real recording studio, you used to have 
you know, you go in the in the in the room and sometimes you have an artist that tells you, okay, you do this, you do that, you did the bass thing on this, that there's a coda here and a break there, and we do a breakdown and we you know, all those things. Most of the time it's more the artist just playing the song for you and then you as a band self-arrange yourself. And sure. that's how it used to be. So I used to be in a room and somebody would raise their hand. Sometimes it would be me, sometimes it would be someone else. I mean, it doesn't matter. It sort of happened naturally. Yeah. And you say, okay, why don't you on the drum just don't play the hi-hat every four there. Just skip it. And then no crash on this. And then no fills there or maybe put a fill there. You know, you, I mean, me on the bass, you know, uh, I'm going to play an A-flat against your, you know, F major or whatever it might be. Uh, you know, and we're going to do that. And then, you know, this make it more glissando or, you know, and just sort of put it all together. Uh, and that means that, you know, all that work that makes for a recording to be quite, you know, either clean or, or prepared, right, uh, was in there. And so the artist would then come in and say, okay, well, you know what, I want more drive and energy. I want you to play eighth, uh, eighth note on the bass. Just pump it, right? So let's just you know, etc. So all that work used to happen. Now it gets deferred, a lot of it because of the unlimited amount of tracks. And, uh, and right. so I think that uh, has shifted a little bit of the, uh, the way, not a little bit, actually a lot, of how people conceive of recording and, and what makes a great recording, which in my view is really 80% uh, musicianship and, uh, you know, arrangement. Uh, and they're both obviously link the two sides of the same uh, same coin. And uh, when you don't have that, it makes it really, uh, really difficult. I know that I did struggle myself, you know, making recording for Pro Tools, but suddenly I'm thinking, okay, you know what? I don't have to deal with this now. I don't. Right. I do. I do. And, uh, and so I went back eventually to the way I used to do recording and building them, like I used to build them on tracks, you know, on, on uh, build them on tape, mm-hmm. uh, which eventually I need to go back to tape. You know, it's like crazy, but that's uh, yeah. that's how it, uh, it sort of happened. Whenever we do gear shootouts, we're always surprised as soon as you close your eyes and, and listen. Mm-hmm. You almost never agree with what you thought you were going to do, you know, or, or it's very it's very disconcerting to close your eyes and make judgments and then open them and realize that your eyes have so much to do with how you've judged something you should really only be listening to. And back when I was doing music on tape bef- before we got into the digital thing, you couldn't see the music. You had to just listen. And my viewpoint mm-hmm. on everything was so different. You know, my, mm-hmm. the way I organized the song and arranged the song and worked on the transitions between parts was mentally very different than it is now because now you can think of it as sections. This is the, the blue grid, section, uh, the orange section, yeah. Yeah, the grid is really, uh, I mean, I know I'm gonna sound like an old fart, but it's a big issue. Yeah. <clears throat> because it's really forcing, everybody now is striving for, <coughs> excuse me, He's striving for perfection all the time. Yeah. And perfection is graphical. It's graphical perception. Why is this snare not aligned there? Let's move it. And you don't, you don't need to move it. You don't need to. Yeah. Why, do we, why do we play to a click? People in general should well, play the to click, a click. You know, it's interesting because a lot of people tell me, ah, the click, the click, the, the click's always been there. Uh, you know, people have always played to click. Uh, not always, but you know, it's always been an option where You've got the feedback mic, and uh, and they used to just put a metronome and fit it in the headphone uh, microphone. So it used to happen all the time. I mean, you know, the best example was uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, that's entirely done to a click. You would have never been able to do this track. I don't care how great musicians they were. 
you know, that's the biggest myth. It's like, well, look at Queen and, and Bohemian Rhapsody. So, no, no, no. Bohemian Rhapsody is a ton of tape edit and, uh, and a click track uh, running through to keep things together. So, you know, so it was, it's always been part of it. I think where it really became, uh, you know, for me, the big shift is not the click track in the headphones. It's the ability to move the music to a grid. The quantization. Right? That's, that that's night and day. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you can't help yourself. Uh, you know, you see it and you say to your point and you just want to say, oh, you know what, we'll just move it. Uh, no, not really. You don't really need to move it. It's, it's unnecessary. I mean, sometimes, you know, if it's really bad, but technically, uh, you know, uh, and you hear, you know, you can hear on, on recordings, I mean, even the ability to change volume and normalize volume, you know, a drummer is going to suddenly pick up and say, that snare drum is weaker than the other. Either replace it or, uh, you know, raise the volume, right? Just, you know, do your little automation. Yeah, okay, we used to do that, but, you know, even with flying faders, it was a nightmare to do. So, you know what, you live with it. And, uh, and then in the, in the, the thing that the grid makes you lose is a sense of perspective. Does it matter? It's always right. a key question. Does it really matter? You know, and people are going to fight and argue and musicians, etc. No, it doesn't matter. It, it's really irrelevant to the final product, to a recording that's going to be commercially released. Hmm. You know what? You want to spend more time on something? Spend some time on songwriting. Songwriting. That's more important. Yeah. Yeah. Which it's 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 interesting bringing up the that the session bands were kind of doing more of the arranging than the artist at least initially you know, play it and it's more of a collaboration. Um, man, that's crazy because I, I feel like any of the the projects that I've ever been in or any of the session work that I've done, the artist comes in and it's you know here's a whiteboard and here's everything that everybody's playing at this time, and it's already been pre-done, which is cool. I mean, it makes my job easier, but it also takes the fun and the creativity and the um, uh, spontaneity of creation from it and the the fact that my perspective is going to be different than the guitar player that they were working with or, or, or whoever, and, and having those little subtleties i mean again to your credit before maybe the average person doesn't care but i do like i i care anytime that i'm doing recording you gotta distinguish so between two types right you got bands i mean you look let's go back to the who since we were using them Mm -hmm. you listen to pete townsend's uh, demos i mean they're unbelievable yeah unbelievable i mean he had a little helios sidecar in his home uh you know with a tape player and and or a track whatever it was and used to bring demos that sometimes became the foundation the tracks that's how good they were so you got that right where it's pretty much you know just replicated in a high more hi-fi environment then you got the the other side the flip side which is really you know uh you know the the sort of um like paul simon type and you know uh carly simon and you know uh carol king you know etc where they don't have a band and so they're going to rely on uh, you know uh, name it like steve gadd and you know, whoever is, you know, the player of the moment, Chuck Rainey, etc. Uh, that's when it came into play. I mean, I, I got, I was lucky to see the tail end of it and participate in it. And, uh, you know, I, mean, I have a vivid memory of uh, doing a session with, uh, you know, with Steve Gadd, of all people, wow, uh, being wow. extremely intimidating. I mean, you know, it was, you know, I, there was another one actually was um, the drummer from All Orleans, uh, what's his name, uh, Jerry Morota. Oh, yeah. You know, and Jerry, I remember doing a session with Jerry, and I played him the song once, and he wrote, like, 
he made. It's like he had crayons. Like he took a piece of paper and wrote one, all Roman numerals, one, three, five, eight, one, three, five, you know. So he broke down the entire song. Mm-hmm. And one listen, just one freaking listen, had everything on paper in front of him and was able to play and do all the fills, all the turnarounds, all the breaks, all the slams, all the, you name it, all there in front of him. So that's what used to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, and then for fun, actually, I remember during the session, uh, you know, uh, going into the control room and telling Jerry, I said, hey, play that now, disco style. And he would, you know, on the spot, like on the spot. Uh, so, you know, you've got that, right, which used to happen. And all those guys knew each other. I, mean, I was not part of his community in the sense of way younger, 22, 23, you know, but, you know, if somebody would come in, uh, you know, they had played with each other, they knew sort of right. what they were doing and, you know, etc. So, you know, even calling each other. And so, uh, so that, that's really, uh, you know, again, like there's no nostalgia about it, but that's a big part of what used to happen. And these guys used to do two to three sessions a day. So the level of practice that you get out of this was, you know, I mean, I know that I got way better, you know, yeah. within six months, just having to, you know, constantly, you know, be in the studio, on the spot having to uh, to deliver. It is draining, but you know, it is at the same time uh, really exciting and right. great. Wow. Wow. That's cool. Well, you know, I, I just want to keep talking because you're just so fascinating and everything you say is full of incredible information that's useful or something I always wanted to know. But I feel guilty because I know we're taking up too much of your time. Can can we hit you with can we hit you with the top five, which is what we like to do with all sure. the guests? Yeah. All right. We talked a little bit about this while you were while you were doing a phone call off to the side there for a little bit, and we've decided that we want to ask you your top five, your personal top five favorite albums that have come out in the last five years, just the five years. <laughs> I know that's the hard part. Uh, otherwise, you just say Beatles one through five, and we'd be done. I, I don't even think I can give you five, but let me see. Um, All right, I'll give you ten years. You can go ten years. Even then, I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. Honestly, don't leave too much in this world, but I'll tell you, um, I'll name a few. Uh, Sarah Jarose, I don't remember the name of the album. I can look it up right now, but I thought it was an We allow right. cheating, it's okay. We have a, a long uh, history of our guests right cheating. Now. Um, Mark Letiri spent half an uh, hour on his, on his computer so cheating. Oh, her album, that was really beautiful. Um, was it uh, Tack? No, actually, uh, let me see. Uh, it's that one. It song up in her head. Mm. Uh, it was a beautiful album. Uh, Crosby, David Crosby's got a band called CPR, and uh, I thought that was really fantastic. Mm. Uh, you know, it's uh, the, the, the band that the, the album that they put out was. I mean, they put a few, but there's really one that I thought was really amazing. Uh, what was it called? Uh, Just like gravity. Just like Red album. Okay. Okay. Um, who else? Uh, I think I can sync up right now. Um, I don't know. That's a, a terrible question because if she had asked me a uh, top five albums from fifty years ago, I could <laughs> like twenty hours. Uh, but yeah, no. I mean, I'll tell you the, the recent. Uh, and what I mean by recent, in the past 20 years. Okay, we'll go back 20, uh, that's fine. Yeah. We'll keep stretching. That came out, the one that I thought was really beautiful was uh, Coldplay Parachutes. Uh, that album really, I still listen to it today. 
I think it was a fantastic album. It's beautifully composed and arranged and played and, you know, etc. Uh, but, you know, in terms of recent, recent albums, like you really got me there. I mean, there's, there's stuff that I worked on, but I, I don't want to really get uh, get into this. But, you know, that that those are really, uh, I don't know, those are the only two I could, uh, I could name, unfortunately. I actually did like the Tony Bennett uh, Lady Gaga album as well. Oh. So it was really interesting and... Uh, you know, but it's more traditional uh, standard jazz, you know. Sure. Um, um, oh, wait, you know what? I'll tell you what's up. Let me, uh, sorry, I don't remember the name. I'm going to look it up right now. Um, uh, Keith Jarrett put out an album called Munich 2016. Mm. just came out uh, last year. Okay. okay. And that is gorgeous. Like, really beautiful, beautiful album. Uh, and that that will be uh, that that's another good one uh, that I thought was absolutely stunning. When you play, what's your... uh, and the Johnny Mitchell the, the the Johnny Mitchell the River Letters by uh, sorry by Herbie Hancock that was a great album. Oh okay. Yeah, which is him doing uh, covers of uh, of uh, Johnny Mitchell uh, songs. Okay. Yeah. I love Herbie. He's fantastic. Yeah. So when you play for yourself as a musician what sort of music do you like to play uh i don't play as much i unfortunately have a, an issue with my finger so i can't play bass as i used to i've got to be very gentle hmm. um i i usually nowadays when i if i pick up the bass and plug it in i'll play along some records and it's totally random it could be anywhere anything from brazilian music uh like milton nascimento elis regina marisa monti etc i love that uh jazz rock Massive jazz rock, I'm average to orchestra, you know, Frank Zappa, things like that. Uh, what else? Uh, I love, you know, like Johnny Mitchell. Uh, I'll play along to Port and Spark. Uh, great backup band. That was the LA Express. Uh, amazing backup band. Uh, so usually I just challenge myself to play along with great records right. and learn. I totally memorize the part from the, the bass player. And, uh, and hopefully sometime I can find uh you know the version without uh you know missing like you know a few instruments and sure. be able to uh, to play along literally and, and write a new part you know things like that so it's more you know for fun nowadays uh, i don't really i don't gig anymore um you know and i have no reason to uh but i, I do keep uh you know trying to you know keep practicing and playing and you know that's well that's like, good very I'm glad to hear you're still playing. You know, once you're a player, you should always stay a player. I feel like that's important, yeah. even if we get no, rocked. I, still have, I mean, I can go and bring it if you want. I have a 1969 uh, Fender Jazz bass that I uh, don't think I'll ever. Actually, no, you know what? I just lent it to a friend. I apologize. Oh. So, he teases us and then he takes yeah. it away. Oh. I have two things in the house. I have a 72 Telecaster and a 69 uh, Jazz bass. That's all I've got. Well, you know, yeah. I I just want that sparkle strat, so you know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll figure it. Yeah, out. Yeah, we'll have to figure that out. I'll have to figure out that. Well, you know. Uh, but but yeah, no. So that that's a lot of uh, you know that's really all. I've, I mean, I'll tell you what I have still today. I have the '69 Helios. I've kept a uh, M269, which is a, a different version of the the U67, which I prefer. A different tube. Uh, I've kept the uh, the Sound Techniques console, which I think I'm going to rack. I'm going to start selling the modules and just rack it. Uh, and uh, and what else? And I think you know, 
that those are really the main thing of uh, and then some instruments I still have a beautiful piano I have a Bechstein that was actually at Sound City um, probably I mean it's for sale we'll see if somebody it's hard to, to sell a piano as you probably know it's nearly impossible but uh, but so for the moment you know I still have that uh, but everything else you know all the obscure shit that I had like you know I had a dyno my piano wrote you know uh, it's really difficult to find uh, I don't know if you know Dino My Piano, but that was, uh, I don't. It, was, it, was a, it was a spec sort of, uh, they used to do custom Fender Rhodes. Okay. So you had different types. You had one with sort of a phaser integrated. Oh. They had a stereo spread that you could have. I mean, you, they would mod it. So Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock. Are they the ones uh, that had the, wha the whammy that they would put on those things? Correct. Okay, yeah, I remember had, that. The one where you could displace, you know, you could move the, the entire I remember keyboard. those, yeah. And so, uh, so you know, I had a lot of those things that are, over the years, you know, that you, you search and, and find, you know, which are really difficult to, to get. Uh, you know, I had, a, you know, also a uh, Les Paul, you know, which uh, had been modded by, uh, by Jimmy Page. You know, we had two of the mics out of phase. Uh, really cool. You can hear it on Led Zeppelin 3, for example. Uh, you know, things like that where, again, you're chasing, right? Submission, yeah. trying to get to those sounds. And, uh, you know, I had Gil David Gilmore's uh, owned uh, some uh, rotating speaker, a little bit like a Leslie, but it's, it's called a Doppler. Uh, okay. He had them custom made. I bought a pair from his roadie, uh, the, the, the European roadie. He had so many. He had made like 16 pairs or something like that. So I bought one. You know, so a lot of those things, you know, are actually, uh, you know, I used to own. And that's what I was really looking for. It's like, you know, I, I can hear that sound. It would be useful. You know how do you do it? And you know you buy the Leslie, the the, the, the one twenty two or one you know one forty five, whatever it is. You know, and I had the big ass pedal that plug in. You know that allows you to, to have the instrument line in. Right. And it was okay, but it was not not perfect. Right. <laughs> you know? And so just talking about you know dark side of the moon. You know you hear all those sounds and you say okay, what is in there? You know you know he's got the Yamaha, right? He had this this big Yamaha. I forgot the the, the model number, which had these little rotating speakers. Uh, and I said, okay, I'm going to have that. Listen to it. it. Didn't sound like what he had. But mm -hmm. Then I realized that he had disconnected the main speaker. He only used the rotary ones, uh -huh. and the rest was fed through his regular guitar amp, which was a high watt. Uh -huh. Right. So I said, okay, now I've got it. Right. So one mic goes to the to the, the rotary. One mic goes to the uh, high watt. I'm there. You know. And then you're saying, okay, well, then he hits a pedal, and you can hear a different kind of rotation. So clearly, it's a Leslie. You know, so you try the Leslie, and it's not there. And then, you know, you learn as you research that he had this Doppler, which really were just three speakers rotating, totally variable speed, complete variable speed. And that's what was Mike. And so wow. now you realize that on some songs, it's not just two speed of the Leslie. You realize that he had, you know, the ability to control variable speed, you know, completely variable speed. So, you know, you do all those things, you know, and, and as you go through it, you know, you, you start accumulating this and that and, you know, and, and start putting together your toolbox. And uh, and so what I've sold is my toolbox, but I've kept the things that are really special to me, right. uh, either because they're unsellable, like a piano, uh, or, you know, the bass. Bass I've owned since I'm um, 23. I actually bought it from the, um, the bass player of the uh, Flaming Lips. Oh wow! So, oh, cool. Yeah, that, either that or uh, I think it's a flaming lips. Ninety percent sure. Right? It's a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, and and interestingly enough, talk about preserving things and actually in this case not preserving. 
uh, I was doing a, uh, a rehearsal on Rivington Street in New York. There used to be tons of rehearsal space there. And uh, Quad Studio was nearby, you know, etc. And uh, put it down, and somebody backed <clears throat> on it and broke the neck. Oh. The original neck. Exactly. That was my reaction. Now, one thing is that I've got, I don't have big hands. You know, I've got short hands. It became an opportunity to, to get my own custom neck, change my playing for the best forever. Suddenly, I didn't have to compete with all the people who, you know, who could put the, the thumb on top of the E string, etc. Right. I was in business. I had something that actually fit me hmm. and didn't change the sound of the bass, uh, even though I ended up changing the pickups as well later. Uh, I still have the original, but I, I ended up getting rid of the pickups. Right. And, uh, and you know, at modern uh, pickups that the guy was doing custom-made in Nashville. And, you know, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. So, you know, anyhow, I'm not sure. I'm just babbling here. But, uh, well, it's not, you know, that's an interesting topic, really, the whole making it your own thing. We've talked a lot about signature instruments on the show or modifying instruments on the show. So that's fascinating that it actually worked out better for you in, in not just it sounded good or it felt good, but it changed your playing. That's pretty impressive. Well, but, but if you look at the reality that we're all into this, well, we, I need a 1959 Les Paul, right? Mm. And then you start really digging or even talking to musicians. I mean, I can tell you on the session scene, nobody, very few people, actually not nobody, but very, very few people had instruments that were absolutely original. Mm. Uh, you just don't. I mean, look at Gilmore. You know, he's, yeah. he's, well, I can't remember there was guitar, but he had this black strap. I mean, this fucking scene was like Frankenstein. Right. I mean, yeah, so it, there's nothing on it. All came from different, harvested from different instruments. Uh, you know, you look at, um, you know, even, uh, you know, the drum kits, right? I mean, you know, I mean, the reason why drum doctors in LA is still thriving is that, you know, everybody wants to get something different. You know, it's not working, I need different pedal. I mean, you know, so there's no, the reality there are no rules. And by the way, when you look at the, gear in the studio, uh, especially the, the recordings that we know, you know, the ones that come from the Gold Star and the Sunset Sound, etc. everything was modded. Everything yeah. was modded for impedance, was modded for electrical current, for voltage, for this, for that, for, I mean, I can go on and on. Well, so there's well, a big myth. Isn't that how so Sound City started? Buy oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just saying, isn't that how Sound City started doing their own amps too? They started by modifying them and eventually said we're going to... Yeah, well, yeah, yes, I know. Yeah, I mean, uh, they also had a license to do uh, high watts, uh, as you know, in, uh, you know, in uh, the US. So there's sort of a license uh, thing. But the, the reality is that, um, again, it sort of speaks to the, the same thing I was saying earlier, use your ears. And right. those people were using their ears. Uh, you know, and you look at the frequency of it. The good example was the, the MM1000 console. You look at MM1000, MM, so if you did just the, uh, the classic curve, you see a big bump in the bass, big bump in the mid-range. You're looking at this, and this is a piece of shit. And then you, play, you record to it, and it's incredible. In my opinion, the best tape machine ever made. Hmm. It's absolutely fantastic. And yes, it does bump you know, at certain frequencies, but you know what? You're the one recording. You know, if you sing this too much bass, you can pull it back. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter, but the tape machine as is sounds incredible. Right. And the transport is retarded, but that's a different story. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, we used to have a graph to be able to, you know, pull the tape. I couldn't thread it otherwise. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, in the same with the 3M tape machines. Uh, you know, but at the same time, you know, they, both of these sounded really, really good. 
So what are we fighting over? Because we think that at, uh, I don't know, you name it, at, uh, you know, X Studio, they use the Neve, therefore Montserrat, uh, they use the Neve, therefore uh, it's the, the, the end of it all. No, uh, absolutely not. I think uh, the ability to make things what you want them to be uh, is a big part of, uh, of uh, I think, success uh, individually, I should say, you know, in, in that business. So it's the human element. It always comes back to us as as musicians or engineers or producers or anything it's you can have the coolest gear but if you don't know how to use it and you don't know how to listen to it and make it make it your own yeah and i think you know in a way there are no standards i mean the, the beauty is that uh, if you look at studios again for me that's like the, 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 the really the, the part that i love in the studios that it's where creativity meets technology right, right. it's that moment uh, and uh, and so it's, it's a very unique environment. You're in a bubble. I mean, it's not. There's nothing human about it. If you think about it, it's it's a weird place, right? I mean, you're in a, in a in a little glass jar with other people and hoping to get something out of it. And uh, and but if you look at studios, right? And look at Wessex in the UK that did a lot of the Queen recordings, right? Or King Crimson, you know, the first album uh, yeah. in the court of uh, Crimson King. Then you go to, so small studio, old church with small studio, really cramped, right? Everybody's on top of each other. You look at Motown, same story. Everybody's in a minuscule room, and yet it sounds big, right? And all the reverb came from things. Then you go to Olympic studio, huge, right? I mean, it's old movie theater. It's massive. I mean, I played there. It's gigantic, right? And uh, and you, you look at that, and yet you can get recordings that go from or Trident Studio is another one, you know, Trident is a big place, was a big place, uh, made all the Elton John, Supertramp, Bowie recordings, Lou Reed, I mean, you name it, right? It's like, you know, incredible. Totally dead. Totally dead. A B-Road, huge orchestra room, yet you can get things that go from, I'm so tired by the Beatles, it sounds like it's right there, mm. right? All the way to uh, a day in the life with this huge orchestra, totally open kind of track. So, you know, the, the space, uh, you know, and the, this idea that you have a certain rule to record, to me, you know, it flies out the window. It's all, it's all bullshit. I think what, again, I'm repeating myself, but, you know, you just need to find your comfort zone with your tools and then you can do anything. I mean, you know, before I left uh, Sun City, you know, I, I did uh, three recordings, pop one, a jazz one, camera movie, and uh, they couldn't sound more, more different. Uh, the room is the same and so and in a way what you're asking from the room is just to make sure it doesn't uh, change what you're hearing you want it to be you know something that doesn't kill the sound doesn't make it reflect too much you know whatever it is you still have control you can put gobos you can you know all sorts of things uh, but at the end of the day you know uh, you don't want to be in a situation for me the definition of great gear and great and, and I guess that would be a great closing statement. The definition of great gear is that it's got to disappear. I don't want to think about it. It should not get in the way. Yeah. And that was always a rule for me. And so naturally where I ended up going is to really dumb gear, right? The Helios console for all of its fame and amazing sonic clarity, the, the, the bottom line is that it got away, it got out of the way. And the reason being is that the signal Ah, the circuit is stupid. 
I mean, there's nothing in there. You open it, and you just think, why am I paying so much money for this? Uh, there is very little. And, uh, and then you pick a, you know, uh, what's a good example? Um, um, not API, but uh, what's the other big British uh, console? Everybody's got them. Uh, SSL. SSL. You look at an SSL. I mean, you've got like 30 chips per channel. Of course, it's going to sound like shit. I don't like SSL. I think they sound awful. And so you just want something that, you know, disappears. You shouldn't think about your guitar. You shouldn't think about the mic. You should just be able to say, okay, I'm hearing them perfectly. And they sound exactly what I'm expecting. Right. And now that I've got this great sounding bass, what am I going to do with it? Do I want to add reverb? Do I want to compress a little bit? Do I need to EQ a little bit? Whatever it is. But at the end of the day, it should be the basis that uh, you know does not interfere. You shouldn't be fighting, uh, you know, upstream. At least that phase. You've got right. plenty of opportunity, you know, opportunities to go fight later. Whether it's in mixing, whether it's in, you know, processing, whatever it is, you know, editing, etc. So, gear that gets out of the way. That's uh, that's a spectacular mantra to have for every studio. It really yeah. is. That's um, that is a great. You know, it never happens. So, people are going to look at this guy's an idiot. <laughs> it does not. No, uh, I'm telling you, that's gonna that's gonna be my new that's my new focus right now. That's gonna be it because I was looking for something to hang my hat on for my next project. That's gonna be it. I want the gear to disappear. It even rhymes. You can't beat that. It must Which be true. You know, where it fails, the, the most difficult part, I got to say, for me, uh, was really the, the speaker selection. I don't want to dwell. I mean, I know we all have to go, but right. that's the one area that people underinvest in. Uh, okay. And that's the one that makes people buy endless amount of gear, endless mm. amount of gear. Mm. You want to do something? Buy a great mic, one preamp, and really spend a lot of money on your monitors. Yeah. And you're set, you know, uh, you're set. And then again, you still have to, I mean, I see you've got, you know, all your, you know, your, your, your sound diffusers there. I feel bad because I got an SSL. So now I feel like, oh, I better hide the SSL. We'll just kind of do this here. But it depends how you use it. If you use it to record or just as return. As a return console, I think it's great, uh, you know. But, uh, but anyhow, uh, it's got so many functionality. You, you can't beat an SSL because everything is in line. And so for the functionality, you got, your compressor, your gate, your limiter, your, everything in one place, at least simple yeah. right. uh, or very efficient. But the, the point being is that the monitors are where people uh, really underinvest, and, uh, and that always shocked me. And that's really difficult when you go in, uh, in a studio. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a thing called Trinoff system. I don't know if you heard about it, mm. uh, which calculates, you put one mic, calculates the entire room for you. So wherever you go, if you carry that with you uh, in a road case, you sort of have, you know, you know that you don't have to find your way around the room, meaning you don't have to place five CDs or, you know, your, your sort of selection of reference recordings and try to guess. Mm -hmm. uh, it sort of normalizes every single room that you work in. It's a weird, jarring experience because sometimes you'll, you know, suddenly hear no bass. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you just, well, there's too much bass in this room, so it compensates. And, but it's amazing. And so, um, but, you know, the point being is that, you know, at least you've got control over your environment. You're in your own studio. If you start being somebody who works at multiple studios, that's a real challenge. Uh, you know, and people, you know, for a long time, it was all the, um, you know, the, the, the horn-based speakers, like the Ure types, you know, uh, really hard. 
uh, you know, people have sometimes ATCs. Sometimes you're going to get into somebody who just thinks that NS10 is the greatest thing ever invented. And then you get the guy with your Oratone. And then you're going to get the guy with your, you know, barefoot speakers, you know, etc. So you, it's very easy to lose uh, perspective as to what you're doing. And, uh, but again, you know, you're, you know, if you have a studio, first thing you should do is really spend some money on your, on your monitoring system. Yeah. Uh, that will sort out 80% of your problems in the studio. At least you know what's coming out from the, the other side of the mic. Yeah. Right. Well, he mentioned Tannoy. I've got Tannoy, so I feel okay about that. My Adams A77 should be all right. And the great. With the Golden Ear sub that goes down to 12. Got to have right. a sub. I, I can't operate without a sub. I never had a sub because I always had these soffit mounted gigantic ATCs. And so, you know, I never felt the, the need for it. But, you know, again, it's all uh, personal and, uh, you know, and, and there's no right or wrong answer to be very honest. And it's, uh, you know, but you, you do know that, you know, when you look in, uh, you know, back in what people were using, like the CD down records, I mean, those were made on the 813C. I mean, I don't know if you worked on those. Mm. I mean, your ears bleed after like three hours. What, are those the Uri's? And they're the one with the blue cone. I had a set of those actually. Yeah, I worked yeah. for I worked for about three years on those. Those made my head hurt. They're yeah. brutal. And so, well, you listen to Gaucho uh, Asia. That's what they were mixed on. But I did find uh, if you can make them sound good on that, man, they translated everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. That was what you were fighting against. And so, and uh, I mean, you listen to uh, like Breakfast in America, mm. my super track. Uh, great, uh, great recording again, and uh, and those were also uh, you know uh, Uray's eight thirteen. They were they were the, one of the first time aligned monitors. That was the, one of the big yeah. things is they were time aligned, and we put on yeah, you the special could, uh, adjust them in the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah we had the time aligned cable time and everywhere. everything, and yeah, the first time we played them with all the everything aligned, we're like, oh my god, we've been using too much treble. <laughs> But, you know, that was the time of oral exciters, too. So, you know, yep. that was yeah. a rough time for eardrums is what that was. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow. All right. Well, look, um, you know, I'm not sure if there's anything else, uh, you know, you want to discuss. But, um, well, I, you know, you've just been a pleasure and so full of information. Yeah. Trey, is there anything else you'd like to ask him before we let him go? I mean, yeah. I'd, the <laughs> only... There's a lot. I got but, a list. But, but, it, but in the uh, in the in the interest of time, uh, you know, the only you know kind of personal selfish question I had was, um, you mentioned you had the this one of the guitars you kept was a '72 Telly, I think you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you done any in the spirit of modding and things? Have you done anything to that, or is it pretty much no, all? That's, that's one is uh, nothing. Uh, I'll go grab it. Ron. Wait, he yes, uh, he lent it to a friend. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, there we go. Oh, I like the color. I hate this background. Um, let me remove the background because it's killing the, uh, the thing. One second. Is it white that yellowed or was it kind of a yellow? Yeah, it's sort of a yellowish. Uh, let me do this. Here we go. Um, yeah, here. Oh, oh wow. Nice. Yeah. Oh, look how dark the neck is, too. That's awesome. Sweet. Yeah, I love the dark necks. Oh, that's been yeah, played too. Neck, that. um, that's been yeah. seriously played. That that I've kept, um, and you can tell it's a little bit up. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's had a long, long, long history, obviously. That's awesome. Before I was even born, so. I'm a huge telly nut. I just love those silly things. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, look again. That's another tool. I mean, if uh, if you want something more aggressive, the, the one guitar which I always found very challenging was the Telecaster, the Stratocaster. Yeah, me too. Um, 
I always found it very thin. And that's where great players uh, come in. I mean, you get a session guy come in with, uh, you know, a strat and say, well, how the hell are you doing this? I mean, uh, I can't get a sound out of it. So. Well, there are some that would say that the telly is the harder of the two. So there you go. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love, I, the telly kind of reintroduced me to dynamic response in playing. Uh, and the strat, I've just never. It's interesting you said I've never been able to marry with a strat because it's a soft sound. It's a softer thing. It's doesn't well, attack is immediate. Like, it's like it's yeah. Slow I, I feel and like soft. every time I play anything, my my pick attack or whatever just makes everything super bright. Whether I'm playing with my fingers or the pick, something about my right hand is just stupid and bright. And the strat typically that just kind of brings out all the worst qualities of of a strat. So I that I mean yeah tellies are are awesome and I I definitely prefer them. See we're just gonna but keep thanks, we're thanks just gonna for keep this poor guy around all night if we just keep yeah. going we gotta let him go. Yeah. Thank you so much. If, if, if somewhere down the road would you consider coming back? We've got lots to talk about with you. Yeah, I mean you know again I'm not really in that business. I'm not sure I'm not at all, man. So, uh, but yeah, if you uh, whatever you want to do. All good. Yeah, it, it was yeah. fascinating. We really had a great time, and I hope you do too. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll definitely welcome you back anytime you're willing. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, thank you so much for stopping by at Gear and Gigs for Trey Hawkins and Olivia Shaston. I'm Jed Stone. Take care, everybody. So thanks for joining us on another episode of Gear and Gigs. So glad you guys could make it. Please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course YouTube. And if you could just take a moment to like and subscribe to the channel, we sure would appreciate it.